I invite you to take a Bible and turn to Colossians chapter 2, where we will be reading verses 16 through 19. In this text, there are a couple of clear commands, and it's always dangerous when we come to commands in the Bible that we look at them as rules to somehow enable us to earn love from God and from others, to earn acceptance, to earn status, and to turn the Bible into a moral guidebook, to reduce it to just being a list of do's and don'ts. And so some have gotten to the place in that process where there's nothing left of the Bible other than some moral truisms, like be good, don't hate, put your money in the plate, or it's nice to be nice and good to be good, for Jesus' sake, amen. And that's not the message of the Bible. The Bible is not a book of self-help. It's not to improve our life, to make us look better to others. It's to bring us into relationship with a holy God and our creator. And so I invite you to hear God's word from Colossians 2, 16 through 19. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind and not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. May God give us understanding and produce fruit from his word. As I've said, the Bible is not a moral guidebook. It is not to be reduced to a list of moralistic rules. But the Bible is to show us who God is what God has done, what God is like, and when we know who God is and what God has done, it becomes clear who we are to be and what we are to do. This passage, verse 19 in particular, ends with the promise of growth, a growth that is from God. And so God has promised church growth. Around the country and around the world today, God's people are gathered in churches, and virtually every church is seeking to grow. And there are different types of growth. But Jesus promised growth. He said, I will build my church in the gates of Hades, literally the place of the dead. The gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. So even death cannot prevail against the growth of the church because Jesus is in the process of building up his body, the church. The early church experienced this growth. In Acts 2, 47, we see that God was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved, and 3,000 were added in a day, and then 5,000 men believed when they heard the gospel. And so the early church experienced tremendous growth. But there's a false growth that's offered to churches and to pastors and elders and church leaders. I get emails every week 
about double your church, cause your church to grow. It can triple and multiple in just a matter of weeks. If you follow these principles, if you do this and this and this, your church will grow. There's a false kind of growth. There's what you could call greenhouse growth. A few weeks ago, we had decorating our sanctuary a number of poinsettias, and I used to work in a garden and nursery industry, so I know behind the scenes what that's like. And these poinsettias, they stick them under lights and they force them to grow. And they look beautiful when they're up here, but after a week or two, you see branches starting to break off because they've been forced to grow so rapidly and it's not solid, sustainable growth. There's a false kind of growth that is not what God brings about or intends to bring about in the church. Some have experienced this kind of growth in their bodies or maybe you've seen that in the bodies of others. I know a a man who um, really got bulked up. He was lifting weights, but I'm sure that there were some substances that he was ingesting that were adding to that growth because after a while, something changed and his neck kind of shriveled up and his arms shriveled up and he, I couldn't even recognize him hardly. There was some kind of false growth that had happened and then it disappeared. But God intends to bring about a genuine growth that is from God. That's what we see in verse 19 when we are holding fast to the head from whom the whole body nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments grows with a growth that is from God. God intends for us to grow individually as believers in our relationship with Jesus Christ. We saw this back in Colossians 1.28 that we seek to present everyone mature or complete in Christ. But this passage is addressing more than individual growth. It's addressing the growth of the body together and as a whole with its uh, emphasis of what the church can accomplish and how the church can be used in the world. And so God intends for us to grow corporately in a sense of dependence on Christ, that we will each grow and together we will grow in depending on Christ, that we will rely upon him in a deeper way and that we would grow deeper in our relationship with others. And that's what's so wonderful and exciting about this community Bible reading initiative that we've launched this year, that people are growing in their understanding of God and their dependence upon God through connecting with his word and they're growing in relationship with others as they're sharing those insights that God gives them through scripture. And then a further result of that that is that we grow wider in our concern for the world and so we grow in caring about our neighbors who don't know Christ. We care about the nations who have never heard of Jesus. And so God has promised church growth, but God also gives warnings to protect the church, and there are warnings given in this text. There are commands that are based on what Christ has done. And so verse 16 begins with the word therefore, and you may know the principle of Bible study that when you see the word therefore, you're to ask, what is it therefore? Well, it is there because it is calling us to think back to what we saw in the previous verses, what God did for his people. God made us alive in Christ 
Because of that, therefore, don't submit to these false teachers who are adding or subtracting from Christ. Because we are freed from self-righteousness and shame, as we saw last week, therefore, don't allow someone to pass judgment on you. Don't allow someone to add things to your list to do to make yourself self-righteous. Don't allow someone to disqualify you, to cause you to feel shame because you're not doing what they are doing. Because God has canceled our debt, nailing it to the cross, don't allow these things to happen to you. And because Jesus triumphed over the rulers and authorities, you don't have to submit to these powers, these false teachers in the church in Colossae who were saying you have to observe this and this and this and you have to do that as well if you really want to be acceptable, if you really want to gain access to God. The commands that we see in this text are interesting commands because they're about what others might do to you. It's not a direct command, don't do this, but it's the command in verse 16, let no one pass judgment on you. How do you obey that kind of command? Let no one pass judgment on you. You might think that you need to live a certain way so people will see you in a good light and then they won't pass judgment on you. But that's exactly the opposite of what Paul is teaching here. He's saying people may pass judgment on you because you don't measure up to their standards. But don't allow, allow that judgment to impact you negatively. Don't allow it to draw you to seek works righteousness. Don't allow it to get you condemned. Don't allow it to bring you to shame because that is not the important word about your life. God has spoken the most important word about your life in Christ. So let no one pass judgment on you. And here, the good news of the gospel is that the judgment that we deserved fell upon Christ. That's why Jesus went to the cross to take the judgment that we rightfully deserved. We all were separated from God by sin, but Christ took that punishment, took that judgment so that we would not be judged. So when someone else comes in to the church, a false teacher, and says, you need to do this and this and this, or you need to stop doing that, you don't allow them to judge you. You don't allow that judgment to have an impact on your life. You just let it roll off as water off your back. So the command in verse 16 is let, let no one pass judgment on you. The command in verse 18 is let no one disqualify you. And here, the, a literal translation would be let not an umpire render a negative judgment against you. The verb is a word that's a compound word. It has to do with the word against and the word for being an umpire. So don't let an umpire rule against you. We see this in sports, whether it's in soccer and you get a, a red card or in baseball game and you're arguing with the umpire at home plate and he says, you're out of here. But here, it, were, it was someone in the church who was saying, you don't measure up. 
you're out of here. You're not truly acceptable to God. You don't really belong among the people of God because you're not meeting these certain standards. So God gives these warnings to protect the church. There were threats to the health and growth of the church. There are still threats to the health and growth of the church today. In Colossae, the threats were very specific ones that Paul mentions in verse 16. Do not let or let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink. And so this could have been likely related to Jewish dietary laws. There were certain foods that were forbidden to the Jewish people. Pork, for example. Shellfish. And so if you were eating bacon and shrimp, and maybe many of us like bacon and shrimp, someone could say, you're judged. You're under the judgment of God because you're eating things that are forbidden in the Old Covenant. But we know that Jesus declared all foods clean when Peter had a vision from God related to Cornelius, the Gentile who came to faith in Christ. God showed him in his vision that all foods were declared clean. And so foods that were forbidden under the Old Covenant are no longer forbidden. Our access to God is not based upon what we eat or what we drink. And yet, we still have issues of that today. I was found an article this week that was addressing food and drink, and it said, food fixation has become a new normal in American life. The golden calf that has arisen in our day is food idolatry. And so we have people who are committed to clean eating, to organic eating, to eating whole foods, to eating vegan, to getting back to the Garden of Eden diet where it was just plant material. And if God leads you to do that, you're free to do that. But know that you can't build a case from Scripture and require that of others. So how should Christians think about food? Food was meant as a gift from God. It was meant not only to nourish our bodies, but for our enjoyment. But our motivation in eating and drinking, as 1 Corinthians 10.31 says, is that whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. And so it's easy for us perhaps today to, to look down our noses at someone who doesn't eat the same way we do and say, what, you're eating processed foods with refined sugar? What's that drink in your hand? It has high fructose corn syrup in it? And you call yourself a Christian? How can you do this? There were food and drink issues in the church at Colossae. I would submit that there are food and drink issues today where we make an idol out of the foods that we eat and the drinks that we drink or the things that we choose to abstain from. I attended a college that had a lifestyle statement that was required of students to sign. The idea was that because you were living in a community that it would be helpful to have all the students committed to the same standards. No one at the college ever communicated or said that these are necessary for salvation. But when you live with those kind of standards, it's easy to look at others askance and think, well, they're not 
living by the rules. And so some have gotten to the place where they puff themselves up with pride saying, we don't drink or smoke or dance or chew and we don't go with girls who do. But God's word warns us, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink. Or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. So here you have a a common phrase that's used in the Old Testament about the annual, the monthly, and the weekly observances that the Jewish people observed. And so there were annual festivals, the Feast of Passover, the Feast of Pentecost, the Feast of Trumpets, the Feast of Tabernacles. And all of these things were commanded by God, and they all had a purpose to point to God's fulfillment of them in the Messiah. A number of years ago, I heard a a Jewish believer do a presentation on Christ in the Passover. And God used that to open my eyes to things I'd never seen before about the Passover. How different elements of the Passover point very specifically and profoundly to the fulfillment that Jesus would bring about. And because that was so helpful to me, I have made that presentation numerous times over the past years, and I've seen that it's been helpful to others as well. But it would be a serious error to say to another believer that you must celebrate the Passover, the Feast of Tabernacles, or any other annual Jewish festival in order to be acceptable to God. These things were a shadow. They were pointing to something beyond themselves. They were reflecting a deeper reality beyond themselves, namely what God would do in Christ. And so there are great and wonderful insights that these feasts point to and show us, but we must not become legalistic and require an observance of them for someone to be acceptable to God. So there were annual festivals. When it mentions a new moon, it's talking about monthly observances. This was something in the Jewish community where they were careful to ascertain when the new month was beginning. And so they would have people out stationed at different places watching for the appearance of a new moon. And they would herald the message when the new moon had appeared because that meant you were to begin fasting or ceased labor or change what you were doing. And so there were these monthly observances as well. And then there were the weekly observances, the Sabbath that came every week. And the Sabbath, as you know, was the seventh day, Saturday. We worship God together on the first day of the week, the Lord's Day, because Jesus, Jesus was raised from, the day, read, raised from the dead on the first day of the week. And so that's why we observe this day as a day of worship. And so some still emphasize which day, on which day you worship. And they make that a litmus test about whether you're really acceptable to God or not. And the teaching in this passage would say, let no one pass judgment on you related to that. Because these things are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. So don't get so caught up in the shadows that you miss the substance 
in addition to these Jewish traditions, things that were commanded as part of the Old Covenant, there were some pagan substitutes that were offered as well. And so in verse 18, it says, let no one disqualify you insisting on asceticism. Now that's a word that we don't use every day, and so some of you may not be familiar with it, but asceticism is self-denial. It's extreme forms of self-denial. And so in some places, in some communities, it was not only fasting, but crawling on your knees to a place of prayer. It was humbling yourself, in this case perhaps before angels, thinking that we can't approach God himself because he's too holy, and so we will approach through the mediation of angels. And so there were, apparently was someone or more than one person in the church at Colossae who was insisting on these things, that you must deny yourself. You must practice these different forms of self-denial and self-humbling in order to be acceptable before God. And then it mentions worship of angels. And the text would suggest, or additional discoveries that have been made in Ephesus and areas around there, would suggest that this worship of angels was kind of a magic, where an amulet, a stone, would be worn around the neck with a certain inscription, and it would address the names of angels, Michael, Gabriel, Uriel, Raphael, protect the one who wears this stone or this amulet. And so the believers in Colossae were being told that if you really wanted to be acceptable to God, you had to submit to these kinds of things. You had to practice these kinds of things. And then there were these additional visions where people would enter into their pagan temples. They'd be caught up in to um, a frenzy, and they would see things or hear things, and they would base their theology, their beliefs, and their teaching on those visions that they had seen, real or imagined, and they would require those of others. And so Paul says, let no one disqualify you based on these things. He says instead that the source is Jesus who is the head. And those who substitute these other things are not holding fast to the head. They, in fact, have cut themselves off from the head. Now, if you cut off the head, you no longer have life. It may be possible for some types of worms to regrow or regenerate a head once it's been cut off, but there is only one head of the church, and that is Jesus. And if we are cut off from him, we're cut off from the source of life. So the warning here is don't allow someone to pass judgment on you. Don't allow someone to disqualify you and to add these different things. And so these rules that were being offered in Colossae were additions or subtractions to Christ. They were either saying, Christ is not sufficient, you need to add these practices, or you can't approach Christ, you need to substitute something else like the worship of angels. And what it was doing was 
putting unnecessary burdens on people. Some of us remember the Ed Sullivan show. You have to be a certain age to remember that. But for those who may not have ever heard of Ed Sullivan, you may have heard of the Beatles, and they were first introduced to the nation on the Ed Sullivan show. But one of the things I always enjoyed on the Ed Sullivan show was there was a man who would come out and he would have these different poles and he would start a plate spinning on the pole. And he'd get it spinning really fast and he'd set that one over here and then he'd come over here and he'd start another plate over here and he'd get that spinning and then this one might be wobbly and he'd come back over here and then he'd start another one over here and he'd get all these plates spinning and one would start to fall and he'd act like he didn't see it and people and then he suddenly grabbed that one and get it going again. And so he'd keep all these plates spinning and that's what this effort in Colossae was doing. People were putting these requirements on the believers in the Colossian church, and they were saying, basically, if you want to be acceptable to God, you have to keep this plate spinning, and this plate spinning, and this one, and this one, and this one. You have to keep adding to what you're doing. But in reality, they were cutting themselves off from the head. And so, being cut off from the head, there was no possibility of growth. If we are to resist being judged this way by others, then by implication, we are to refrain from judging others this way as well. And so we need to be very careful when we look around the body of Christ that we don't require of others in the body the very practices that we choose for ourselves. One of the things that is a decision that each family makes is related to the education of their children. And some choose to homeschool, some choose public school, some choose private school. And it's very easy to look at others and think because they didn't choose what we're choosing, they're not really in God's will. We need to guard ourselves against adding to Christ, adding requirements to Christ and saying, you must do this in addition to trusting Christ. No, Paul says, hold fast to the head. Don't go after the shadows. Seek the substance, which is Christ. So God has given us nourishment to enable the church to grow. He's promised that the church will grow. He gives warnings to protect the church from threats to its growth. And then he gives nourishment to enable the church to grow. We read in John 15 this morning that apart from Jesus, we can do nothing, that we must abide in him. And so to abide in Christ means to come to him, to receive all the life-giving juices that flow from the vine so that we can experience growth and fruitfulness. We must hold fast to the head from whom the whole body grows. And so this text is not about adding things or subtracting things. It's not about doing more or stop doing this or that. It's about an invitation. The invitation is to come, to come and partake of the bread of life, which is Jesus Christ. Come and drink of the living water that he offers freely to all who come to him. And so the invitation is for us to pursue Jesus by faith to go hard after the head, to 
cling to him by faith, to build our life around him, and to experience what it means to feast on him, to feed our souls on him, to gain the nourishment that we need in order to grow. And so, again, as people are using this community Bible reading tool, it's just a tool, there's nothing magic about it, and it's not a rule that we're adding to Christ but it's an opportunity to get into God's word, to experience Christ, to feast on Christ, and to share that with one another. And so let us pursue Jesus by faith, feasting on him and fixing our eyes on him. Hebrews 12 says to let us fix our eyes on Jesus or to keep our eyes fixed on him. I've spoken before about joints and ligaments because this past year that was something that I learned in a very experiential way through a hip replacement. But in this text it says that as joints and ligaments were being knit together. So you and I are unique. God made each one of us unique. We're not all the same and so we don't require others to do and be the same as we are. God didn't make us to be clones. There was a Christian musician a number of years ago, Steve Taylor, who had a song, I Want to Be a Clone. And he said, if you want to be one of his, you've got to act like one of us. And sometimes that has been the message of the church, that if you really want to belong to Jesus, you have to do it our way. You have to be like us. You have to dot your I's the same way, cross your T's the same way. But Jesus has arranged the parts of the body, 1 Corinthians 12, just as he had intended. He made us different. We're not all the same. Some are hands, some are feet, some are eyes, some are ears. Some are more like internal organs that are not seen. But each part of the body is vitally important. And so if we suggest or require of someone else that they have to be like us, we are derailing them from God's purpose for them. God has made us unique, and he wants to knit these joints and ligaments together so that the body might grow, so that all the life-giving juices that Jesus offers to us will flow to us and through us. And when we are fully satisfied in him, then we are able to love others. We're enabled, empowered to love others because we're drawing from him all that we need. We're having our needs met in him and we're being filled to the point of overflowing where we can graciously relate with those around us. So God wants to give us growth as a church. He wants this church to model this kind of life that is absolutely dependent upon Jesus that reflects the love and grace and truth of Jesus to the world, that allows the different parts of the body to be the parts they were created to be. And God has promised growth as we hold fast to him. So as we sang early this morning, from the shifting shadows of the earth, we will lift our eyes to him, where steady arms of mercy gather children in. God wants to gather you in, to hold you close, to hold you fast, so that you will hold fast to the head and experience the growth that God wants for us and be the church that God intends us to be. When we are living in relationship with Jesus that way, the fruit will be that the love of Jesus will be spread from this church 
to the world. May God do that by his grace. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your goodness to us. We thank you that Jesus bore the judgment that we deserved so that we can be free from this judgment and we can be free from false judgment of others. Thank you that he was disqualified, that he was reckoned to be a curse when he was on the cross so that we might be accepted in your sight. And so, Lord, cause us by your grace to hold fast to the head so that the church, so that we, your people, would be built up into all that you intend us to be, that your body might be effective in fulfilling your purpose in this earth. And we ask it all in the name of and for the sake of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.